Hello, and thank you for joining us on The Business Advantage Presents AT Law with Tammy Gaw. I am Alicia M. Pennington, your host and owner of Advantage Athletic Training, back today with Tammy to talk about pre-existing conditions. This is an important topic in way of legal matters, and one that we as ATs are being placed with increasing responsibility for. We will be covering conditions such as sickle cell and sudden cardiac arrest, discussing how to navigate the liability waters and prepare yourself should a patient of yours present with a pre-existing condition. Enjoy some engaging discussion around the legal aspects of these topics and discover how we can identify established resources to protect ourselves when it comes to pre-existing conditions. Because the information discussed and provided in the accompanying podcast is prepared for a general audience without investigation into the facts of each particular case, it is not legal advice. Tammy Gaw does not have a lawyer-client relationship with any listeners. The thoughts and commentary about the law contained on this podcast is provided as a service to the community and does not constitute solicitation or provision of legal advice. The U.S. government's Health and Human Sciences Department defines a pre-existing condition as, quote, a health problem one had before the date of coverage starts. They are defining this for purposes of health insurance, but it provides a good frame of mind for approaching this conversation in regards to what is included. Tammy, would you agree that this is a correct understanding to the approach of what a pre-existing condition would be defined as? Well, as we all know, my favorite answer is it depends. (laughs) That definition, of course it is. The definition that HHS uses and that is commonly used in the insurance business is purely an American construct based on our insurance system, Mm. which no other developed country in the world has to deal with. Hmm. The insurance definition, it's just simply a billing construct. It's the idea that they don't want to have to pay for things. Ah. So the pre-existing conditions that affect an athletic trainer's treatment of our patients I think are better thought of as a predisposition or a susceptibility to certain conditions due to things like genetic or environment, genetics, environments, previous illness, injury, that kind of thing. That makes sense. So as athletic trainers, it seems that we often inherit uh, a myriad of quote unquote pre-existing conditions in our athletes. And uh, it's not necessarily just what that definition includes, but Um, even looking at orthopedic in terms of a a history of injuries or concussions, um, behavioral or psychological conditions that they may be be coming with, or even just general medical. So if that's the working definition, and we know that every individual is going to come with a health history, essentially, how can we better frame today's conversation for the listener to understand how to approach pre-existing conditions? Well, we talked about it in the previous episode, but I cannot say it enough. It's all about treating athletes as a whole person. I mean, back in the day, 
prior to both of us practicing, and even more recently than I would like to think, <laughs> pre-participation screenings were things like, you know, blood pressure and height and weight. Mm. And it's progressed to include screening for cardiovascular disease and diabetes and asthma and other predisposing factors. Right. But a good screening doesn't just involve objective assessments like that. You need a subjective history as well. Mm-hmm. If you work in an affluent district or area, it may not occur to you that malnutrition due to economic pressures on a family can predispose a patient to certain risks. That's a really good point. I mean, a vitamin deficiency. It Mm -hmm. it really is. You see these food deserts. And if a kid or a young person suffers from a vitamin deficiency because they live in a food desert where they cannot get easy access to healthy foods, Mm -hmm. that can lead to a variety of problems Mm -hmm. that may not be present in a more affluent area. Mm -hmm. If you work in an area like Flint, which still does not have clean water after more than four years, feel free to call your congressman. (laughs) The reality is, I mean, really, four years. But you're talking about an entire generation of young people who could come into your program with lead poisoning. Yeah, wow. The, The side effects of lead poisoning range from mental and learning disabilities Mm -hmm. to Various predispositions to orthopedic injury. Right. That's a reality that you, as an athletic trainer practicing in Flint or getting a kid in your program from Flint, mm-hmm. would have to know about. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's one of those things that I just don't think enough people, not because they're, not because they're bad at their jobs or because they're being ignorant. Mm -hmm. I think it's just if you have an experience with a certain demographic, Mm -hmm. you assume that all demographics are like that. Sure. And that's just not necessarily the case. And so when situations like pre-participation screenings, that's where athletic trainers can be uniquely valuable in recognizing risks if they are given not only the opportunity to do it and the the access, Mm -hmm. but take the time to do the work. It's seeing the patient as a whole person. Absolutely. Not just as a tick on the box. Absolutely. And we're going to get into a little bit um, about athletic trainers being given the opportunities. So I appreciate you framing that for our discussion. As our profession focuses on identifying ourselves as healthcare professionals with obtaining NPIs, seeking third-party reimbursement, and pulling athletic training programs out from college athletics and into the athletic departments, I think that we faced in increased responsibility in understanding and identifying pre-existing conditions. Outside of the high school or collegiate settings, uh, where the athletic trainer may have a chance to actively participate in the pre-participation exam, we really rely on the notes of another medical provider to kind of give us information on a standardized form of potential issues that we should know about our patients. And so while one could argue that potentially this limits our liability in relying on another medical provider to complete that exam and having the standardized information submitted, I think it also could be argued that we are potentially inheriting a patient who could be of grave concern for us and we may may have no idea because we've never actually seen them or put our hands on them. So where do you see liability falling in this situation? Well, as with many things, the liability risk can vary by the situation. Mm. You know better than most people. If you're a contract athletic trainer covering a one-off game, mm-hmm. you may not have any of your athletes' full histories. Even if, you, even if you are presented with a binder of documentation 
right. you're not going to have the context of their full history. Right. And of course, this is why as qualified medical professionals, we have to continue to fight to have uh, proper medical coverage at events and for teams. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about potential risk factors, there are some that we currently don't have the facilities or technologies to diagnose. Hmm. If, if I had my, yeah, if I had my own druthers, as it were, um, you know, a full body scan yeah. that could detect heart disease, risk of stroke and CTE. We still can't diagnose CTE in live people. Correct. You right. can only diagnose CTE after death, after as death. we've talked about in the previous podcast. You know, really if quick. there was some way to do that, yeah. I was going to say even concussions, right? We're um, obviously trying to get those diagnosed, mm-hmm. but it just reminds me, you know, as we're again, from the previous conversation, just the, the continued advancement of even just trying to get those under control. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. It's, we've made one medical advancement, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm looking for the Star Trek days. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm waiting for when subdermal hematomas can be fixed by a, uh, a fixing a little metal uh, nanotech to the front mm-hmm. of the, to the front of the skull. That's what I'm looking for. But until then, we have the reality of being confined by either current science or in some cases facilities. Your mm-hmm. youth sports are not going to have the same facilities as the New England Patriots do. Right. Um, so that is that is definitely an aspect. Mm-hmm. It's just not the current state of the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, and you and I have, have talked about this before, there's a, uh, I think of, a, of a, the story of Fabrice Malumba, who mm-hmm. is a soccer player in the English Premier League, and in 2012, he went into cardiac arrest on the field when Bolton was playing Tottenham. Mm-hmm. It was shocking. It was on television. Yeah. It was absolutely terrifying mm-hmm. to watch, even from thousands of miles away. Yeah. But this young man is only alive because there was a cardiologist in the crowd who came on the pitch to treat him. Yeah. And we can, we'll go into some of the details of that later. Right. But it was determined later that the cause was a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy yep. and that two proteins in his heart, in his heart cells just weren't you know, quote, communicating yeah. with each other. Um, he was diagnosed with the uh, arrhythmogenic right ventricular mm-hmm. cardiomyopathy, mm-hmm. which is a genetic flaw mm-hmm. that was undiagnosed. He's a professional footballer that had been playing yeah. at the top level for seven years. Yeah. He transferred between clubs. He had medical screenings each time, yeah. and no one caught it. Right. And this is an arguably the richest professional soccer league in the world. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the reality is there are conditions in the human body that we don't have the capability to detect ahead of time 100 percent. Right. Um, I mean, there are I've I've read studies that say there's estimated that 40 percent of, of patients with AVRC, which is what he was diagnosed with, will have no symptoms whatsoever. Right. And so no one knew until it happened. Yeah. And so with everything else in our profession, we have to adhere to best practices and stay on top of the new developments and screening as best we can. Definitely. And that involves advocating with administrators, advocating with those people that control the budget, mm-hmm. who will frequently look to cut costs wherever possible. Mm-hmm. We know that's true. So that requires us having to stay engaged in that discussion. And absolutely. maintaining the documentation of your effort to adhere to those best practices is an absolute requirement to defend your position if something unfortunately happens. Yeah, I, I love all of what you just said. And uh, we're going to dive into the details of that. But I think that that's a, a perfect example of, um, like you said, even at the highest level, sometimes the technology isn't there. And so I do think it's important for purposes of the discussion today that 
um, that is out there, that we are going to be talking about all the things that we can do within our power. And like you said, making sure that you're advocating as best as possible, but sometimes you're just limited by situations or circumstances. And, and we'll definitely go into that. So in the event that an athletic trainer is aware of a pre-existing condition, which will be the case when we discuss sickle cell, I think it's plausible that we better position ourselves as valuable members of a healthcare team because certain patients may require ongoing care. That would also be the situation maybe in a diabetic athlete or an asthmatic athlete. So in that situation, Tammy, do you think it could be argued that more pre-existing conditions that are identified could create job security for us? Oh, I think that's right. And I know that the best intentioned coaches and teams have an end goal mm. that is bigger than the individual athlete. Mm -hmm. And some people still think that a cursory evaluation is acceptable to get a kid into a system. Mm -hmm. That's arcane thinking at best, mm. um, possibly malpractice at worst. Mm. Um, and the more that athletic trainers can impress upon administrators, organizations, that a thorough pre-participation screening helps protect everyone and is in the athlete's best interest, the better, part, the better off our profession is. That's a really great point. I definitely agree with you there. So, so with that said, it can be assumed that we can limit our liability and we may create job security for ourselves. But based on that, the significance of identification of pre-existing conditions to our profession is paramount. So again, as we increasingly position ourselves with other medical providers, our ability to identify a pre-existing condition and thus act when a complication occurs is going to increase our responsibility and liability. Tammy, I wonder, is there a point where ignorance is bliss on this topic? Like, could it be argued that less is more when it comes to knowing about a pre-existing condition? Or should we fight to understand everything that our patient is walking into us with? Oh, I'll be very blunt. If an athletic trainer does not care to ensure that the, their patients' needs are paramount and deserve the best possible care, they should get a new career. <laughs> I I'll love just, it. I'll <laughs> say it flat out. It, yeah. I, I, there, I, that is one where I will not give you a qualification before an answer. Yeah. No one is saying that athletic trainers need to be cardiologists, neurologists, hematologists. But if you don't think that part of your job is staying on top of relevant science, that is unequivocally a professional failure on your part. I totally Full get stop. that. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for making that so poignant because I, I do think that <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. I mean, I do think that to an extent people might think the less I know, maybe I am better off and I'll just deal with it when it comes. Um, but like you said, with where we've been and also where we're going as a profession, we have a right and responsibility to this information. So uh, very well said. <laughs> well, please just think of it as NBC. The more you know. Yeah. Just a little star flying across there the screen. <laughs> For those of you too young to know what that is, uh, look it up. Ask your parents. I love it. YouTube it. <laughs> um, exactly. So let's go ahead and jump into some case studies on uh, this topic. We will start with sickle cell. So in 2010, the NCAA began testing to determine if someone, uh, particularly a collegiate athlete, obviously NCAA, um, is predisposed to sickle cell trait. 
Previous to that, as many as 15 athletes had died in the previous decade. But the rule change was mostly spurred by the death of Dale Lloyd II at Rice University, whose family sued and the NCAA settled in 2009. Uh, and then after, as a result of that settlement, they revisited the bylaws uh, to require testing for the sickle cell trait. So knowing that this rule was put in place in 2010, um, let's look at the case of a 2014 Cal football player, Ted Agu, or Agu, excuse me if I'm mispronouncing this. He died of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is the same thing that you brought up in relation to the professional football player. And this is a situation that is secondary to sickle cell trait. So when this football player died, um, the lawsuit that him and uh, his family brought upon the university um, accused athletic trainers, coaches, and the university of, quote, reckless and negligent behavior. Now, interestingly, the athletic trainer at the time of this athlete's passing was previously the athletic trainer at the University of Central Florida in 2008 when another athlete, Eric Plancher, passed away due to sickle cell. But this was prior to the screening. So part of the family's defense in that lawsuit is that it was negligent on the behalf of the university to hire an athletic trainer who had been part of an athletic department who actually was found guilty of negligence in Eric Plancher's death. Tammy, I am anxious to hear what are your thoughts on this? Uh, you know, kind of the, the athletic trainer continuing to work after found negligent um, and even just the general presence of another athlete's death and kind of just, you know, all of the details that have been shared up to this point. Well, it's, I mean, it's an absolutely horrific situation. Um, absolutely. There's just, it's, it's infuriating and it's saddening and, and a combination of everything. Mm -hmm. um, Corner, as you mentioned, determined the cause of death was the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, myopathy, which mm -hmm. we did talk about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, in Fabrice's case, there was no evidence that he had sickle cell. Mm -hmm. If he had, it would have been appropriate to tailor workouts based on the heightened risk factors for an cardiac event. Yeah. And with mm -hmm. proper monitoring, a carrier of sickle cell can perform at a high level with no adverse effects. Right. And so, uh, you know, there's there were too many other things that could have been done to address this, I think, mm -hmm. that could have possibly caused it to end a different way. Yeah. I mean, do you think that um, the athletic trainer is able to uh, move from state to state or continue to practice because California doesn't have licensure? No, I don't. And I will tell you that I would not want to be the one trying to convince a plaintiff's attorney, a judge, or a jury that I should be able to. That yeah. is not a leg. Got that it. is not a leg to stand on. Licensure, while important, uh, and I look forward to the day when California catches up, mm -hmm. um, it is hardly dispositive of whether or not a certain standard of care should be required. That That is no legal defense upon which you could rely. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Cal eventually pled guilty to the charges of negligence and agreed to pay $4.75 million in damages. 
We also know that the athletic trainer was transferred to the track and field team after this incident and later left the university. Moving on to sudden cardiac arrest, I want to talk about a case that came up in Kentucky where there is currently pending wrongful death lawsuit naming the athletic trainer, coaches, athletic director, principal, and superintendent for being, quote, gross, reckless, and negligent in getting the athlete, quote, prompt and necessary medical care. So let's take a look at this case. At 4.19 p.m. on April 26, 2017, the athlete called his mother to come pick him up after complaining of, quote, lightheadedness, trouble breathing, and a racing heart to a coach. So he made those complaints to a coach and he called for his mother to pick him up. That was at 4.19. At 4.37, the mother arrived at the school to be told by two students that her son had collapsed in the athletic training room. EMS was not present when the mother arrived, nor was the AED being used or even in the athletic training facility. According to the lawsuit, the automated external defibrillator, the AED, that was supposed to be in the athletic training room had been previously removed by one of the athletic trainers and taken to the baseball field. Footage shows the athlete walking to the athletic training room at 4.24 p.m. So this would have been five minutes after the athlete called his mother. The assistant coach then runs in at 4.36, so one minute before the mother arrives. At 4.40, two students run towards the front of the school, returning at 4.43 with an AED in their hands. According to the fire and police records, there was about a five-minute delay in the athlete collapsing, which is estimated to be at about 4.28, and the call to 911. Attorneys claim that there was a total of a 14-minute delay in the administration of the AED. The athlete was pronounced dead at 5.47 p.m. when he arrived at the hospital. Tammy, without jumping too deep into negligence, which is a topic that we will cover later in this season, what legal factors are at play here? Well, just as a general overview, um, and again, like you said, we'll go into it uh, more in depth, but negligence has four general elements that have to be met. There has to be a duty of care. There has to be a breach of that duty. Then the defendant's breach has to have caused the plainest injury. Mm. So it's, it's a causation mm -hmm. issue. And then the law needs to provide for the recovery of damages. Mm -hmm. So those are the four those are the four things that you can always keep in mind with respect to negligence. Okay. So let's look at what would go into gross negligence or reckless conduct as is alleged by the suit. Mm -hmm. um, different states have different ways that they describe this because it wouldn't be, why would we want it to be so easy that it could be universally defined, but that for the most too part, much sense. gross negligence. Yeah, <laughs> why would we want that? Um, so, gross negligence and recklessness are flagrant acts of negligence. You can imagine a spectrum of the different kinds of negligence. Okay, uh, not a spectrum we all like to imagine, but it's a good visual. <laughs> so, you have negligence, and then gross negligence is more than negligence, mm -hmm. but not quite to the level of recklessness. Okay. And so a defendant could be grossly negligent if he failed to give even slight care to the possible ramifications of their action, mm. require an intentional conscious failure to either do what one should do or the intentional doing of what one should not do. Okay. 
within the context of medical malpractice, the term gross negligence can refer to conduct that is so mistaken that it renders itself virtually obvious to a layman who would not have medical training. I see. So okay. think of leaving a scalpel in a body cavity during surgery. Oh, wow. Okay. Everyone would know that that's not, that's not an appropriate thing to do. Mm-hmm. So then to get to recklessness, that's a higher degree that, of negligence than both negligence and gross negligence. Okay. So courts have deci- defined that as knowingly engaging in a negligent act. So mm-hmm. it's a behavior that a reasonable person would know is likely to invade another's right or to to cause damage that way. I see. Okay. So it's pretty apparent that this death could have been avoided, but what's the takeaway here for you? Well, not knowing the entire medical history um, and uh, you know, having not read every single document and assertion in the case, I don't know for certain that it could have been avoided necessarily, but it seems pretty clear from the information available that there were obvious precautions that were not taken. And that just adds and creates a very sad story because those are those are actions and precautions that seem to be fairly easy to do. It didn't require a particularly fortuitous uh, sequence of events. Mm-hmm. If the AED had been on site, mm-hmm. that seems like from the information available, that could have made a difference. Right. Absolutely. So, Tammy, looking back uh, at sickle cell and when we discussed the idea of being able to screen for it or not screen for it, as we know, in 2010, the NCAA uh, enacted that. But to my knowledge, it really only is at collegiate level and higher where it's required. Uh, You know, so how does this apply to athletic trainers outside of the NCAA or pro sport? So for those athletic trainers who aren't required to have their athletes screen for it, yet we know the compounding factors include heat and exertional exercise. Does one simply respond to a situation in front of them, like, you know, checking for breathing or pulse and just provide care as needed? Well, I would take a, a almost a, a further step back, not only talking about getting a whole understanding of the patient's background, um, but sickle cell can be found as part of newborn screening. Mm. Um, some data from the Mayo Clinic indicates that the blood test is now part of a routine newborn screening. Interesting. So okay. it can be undiagnosed, but a lot of times, even without having another test, asking for a family history. Mm. Does your mom have sickle cell? Maybe the kid is not diagnosed yet. Yeah. But perhaps one of the parents are. And so that can give you some kind of indication. Again, it's all about asking, asking questions and treating the patient as an entire person. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a, a really underestimated uh, way to, a very easy way to try and get some context of this situation. I okay. think uh, asking that as part of a family history is basic inclusion of right. pre-participation screening. Mm-hmm. But then also, regardless, monitoring all athletes during heat and conversional exercise is basic professional care. Yeah. Um, Dehydration can be a contributing or exacerbating factor of a variety of different conditions, but it can be dangerous for even totally healthy athletes. So I think what this, I think these kind of stories and these kind of tragic cases uh, lend credence to the idea that this old school method of running kids into the ground just because that's how it's been done in the past is somehow toughening them up 
I think that the evidence, both medical and anecdotal, belies that to be the case. Mm -hmm. In Maryland, we just had an incident uh, at the time of recording uh, just a couple of weeks ago of a young man that died after falling unconscious Mm -hmm. at practice during exertional exercise. Mm -hmm. And we know too much at this point Mm -hmm. for that to be something that we are okay with happening or that we accept as just being part of the 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 dynamic of outdoor exertional exercise mm-hmm. and not just football players mm-hmm. that's outdoor conditioning for baseball players right that's track and field athletes yeah. that's you know running poles and softball every outdoor athlete is going to the athletic trainer should have to think about that so maintaining yes sickle cell is a predisposing factor mm-hmm. and there are ways to uh, incorporate that knowledge into your treatment but we we should we should be looking at heat and exertional exercise monitoring across the board. Absolutely. And you bring up some really great points. In our next topic after this one, we're going to be discussing preventable conditions. And we're going to be looking at that extensively uh, because of all of the things you just mentioned. Um, there really is no excuse or very little excuse for anybody to be dying of this anymore. But it does make me wonder... In your opinion, why hasn't this testing matriculated further down? And, and by testing, I mean like the, the required screening. Why do you think it hasn't matriculated further down than the NCAA yet? I mean, is it just cost or have not enough people died? Well, I am. Uh, this is another one of those that I have very strong feelings on. Mm. Um, in my opinion, uh, and I think the evidence backs it up. It's because organizations have perfected the art of distancing themselves from their responsibilities. Oh man! Um, these sports organizations claim that providing medical care is cost prohibitive. There is inadequate training of coaches at that level to recognize issues or train them on diseases like sickle cell. Mm-hmm. School districts will outsource screening or care, claiming that it's someone else's responsibility. There's a lot of excuses out there. Yeah. And when you're talking about youth sports organizations that are raking in participation fees yeah. and yet claiming that basic medical screening is not their purview, hmm. I, I disagree with that vehemently, vehemently. Makes sense. And if something happens, it's just best for these organizations to point fingers at a specific, a specific medical provider or coach. And there's not enough. I, I consider it that there's not enough continuity of professional expectation. Now, of course, cost is a factor. Sure. Um, and we see, yet again, a situation that can have a racial dynamic to it. Mm-hmm. Um, one out of every 13 African-American babies is born with sickle cell trait. And about one in every 365 black children is born with sickle cell disease. Yeah, uh, That's, that's you know, fairly current uh, statistics. Yeah, oh, I was going to say. But it, sickle cell it, is pretty... also... Yeah, that that's pretty um, common. I mean, that that's one in thirteen, yeah. or even one hundred and three hundred one in three hundred sixty five is, uh, I think, would be considered common. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's not just uh, it's not just black children. Mm. Sickle cell is seen in fa- uh, in people with families from Central and South America, okay. um, in some uh, Caribbean and Mediterranean countries as well. Mm. And so there is, you know, it, it's it's frequently discussed in terms of the African-American predisposition to it. Right. But that is actually, it can actually be present in a lot of different, uh, a lot of different ethnic histories. Sure. Um, ethnic medical histories. So if we take that then and look at the reality of 
social inequality in this country. And we start talking about access to medical care that is limited in lower income areas. And when that limitation and that limited access intersects with people of color who may have predispositions to conditions, Mm -hmm. it is not a stretch at all to see an institutional failure to properly screen and account for diseases like sickle cell. And it is a reality we don't talk about nearly enough. And it goes to the point that we continue to make. Our athletes, patients are not commodities. Everyone has a right and deserves access to medical care, regardless of their income, regardless of their demographic, regardless of anything. And this is an absolute prime example of it. That's a really good point. I mean, it it just makes me wonder uh, in what you're saying in that, is, is there any legal ramification in there? I know that, you know, you're kind of saying that they could, they're essentially pointing the finger elsewhere. Could they be, could, could there be anything ever like accused in this situation of what people would probably say you're alluding to? Well, with, with respect to ignoring, intentionally ignoring demographic communities, I think that would be an interesting, uh, an interesting argument to make. But with respect to including these organizations and actually holding them responsible, they're just like with the, uh, the case that you cited where everyone was brought in as a defendant and named as a defendant. These organizations can be, can be sued. Uh, mm-hmm. We talked in the previous example about waivers. Mm-hmm. Um, there, is, there is a, I don't think it's shifting fast enough for me, but there is a shifting result of, of cases regarding accountability and liability, even when a waiver is signed. And so in the past where certain organizations could say, well, the parents signed it or assumption of risk, or we weren't the ones that did the medical screening, they had to come in with it. So they went and saw a doctor on their own time. We don't have our own medical professional. These kind of excuses, I think, are starting to be seen through. Mm -hmm. So as it goes, as, as it applies to that, yeah, I think we are seeing a little bit of a shift, mm-hmm. but we're not seeing it fast enough for me. And we're not seeing it fast enough for some of the demographics that are being commoditized and yet disregarded with respect to the care that they are owed. Hmm. I, yeah, I remember you bringing up the waivers in our last episode and um, you're right. I mean, it, it'll just be interesting that now that you've kind of shared this knowledge and that we're all aware of it. Uh, I, I think personally, I'll start paying attention to this kind of stuff more, but it will be interesting to see where the next wave of information goes and maybe how we see a shift or share of responsibilities happen moving forward. Thank you for listening. You are now eligible to earn your free Category A CEU by logging on to theadvantage.com slash CEU and taking the quiz. If you're enjoying listening or know a colleague looking for continuing education, please share our link and don't forget to like us on social media at The Advantage. Thank you to Mr. Logistics for the music you've heard throughout.